I fit in to all of this? Would you like to find Romans chapter 11? We're going to read from the end of chapter 11, verse 33, through into the beginning of chapter 12. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory for ever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. The end of August in the year 1665, a bundle of cloth arrives in a village in Derbyshire called Iam. Somebody hangs up the cloth to dry and it releases a a whole load of fleas. And those fleas are infected with bubonic plague, the Black Death. On the 7th of September that year, just a week later, the first victim of the plague died in the village. What would you have done if you'd lived there? Run like mad. Get away from it all. But the trouble was, nobody knew who was infected and who wasn't because there's an incubation period before the symptoms show. And if the people had scattered all around the surrounding area, the plague would have decimated towns and villages for miles around. And led by the minister of the church there, the villagers decided that they would stay inside the boundaries of their own village for as long as it took for the plague to die out. Food and medical supplies were left on the outskirts of the village so that people could go and collect them. People nursed one another. The plague went on for 14 months. 260 villagers died. That's about 80% of the village. By the end of the 1st of November, 1666, the last victim died and the plague had run its course. Why did those villagers sacrifice their lives for others? The reason was very simple. Because they had a faith in a God, in Jesus Christ, who had sacrificed his life for them. And that's our theme tonight. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. What is a sacrifice? Well, there's the old Sunday school story of a hen and a pig having a conversation. And the hen says to the pig, the farmer's really good to us, you know. I think the least we could do is give him bacon and egg for breakfast every day. 
And a pig said, that's fine. For you it's just an offering. For me it's a total sacrifice. And that's what a sacrifice is. It's giving everything. Now, when Paul was uh, writing to the Romans, New Testament times and earlier, sacrifice was a major part of all sorts of religion. It had been a major part of the Jewish faith and it was a major part of the pagan religions. Just imagine for a moment, you come to Mutley on a Sunday night, okay? And instead of singing some hymns and watching a DVD and have somebody speak. This is what the service is like, okay? You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the, wall, on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to God. That's in the beginning of Leviticus and there's lots more like that in that book. Imagine you come and it's all about slaughtering animals. That's what religion was like in ancient times. Why? Well, one of the ideas was this. When you came into the presence of God, it was so serious a matter that only the very best could be given and the ultimate thing to give was a life. That's why some of the pagan religions, not the Jewish religion because God had forbidden it, but some of the pagan religions when things got really tough would offer human sacrifices. Giving the very biggest sacrifice they could possibly make. So why don't we have sacrifices in church? Why have we not got an altar up here? Why are we not all dripping with blood and all the rest of it? Well, because all the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed to an ultimate sacrifice that was going to come. Hebrews 10.10 says of Jesus, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. You see, the very best thing had to be given. And the very best thing was the life of the Son of God dying on the cross for you and me, for our sins, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be put right. And that sacrifice is so great, no other sacrifice ever needs to be made in terms of animals and all those kind of things. But nevertheless, despite that, sacrifice is absolutely central to the Christian faith. That's why Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. I want to quickly try and answer three questions about that. Why should we? What does it mean in practice? And how can we do it? Here's the first one. Why should we offer our bodies as living sacrifices? Well, the answer is because it is our reasonable service. In the NIV, you've got, it says, this is your spiritual act of worship. But another way of translating that says, this is your reasonable service. This is a rational response to the love of God. It's the proper response to who God is and what God has done is to say, I give everything back to you. That's why we started at the end of chapter 11. Usually when you're preaching on Romans 12, you start Romans 12, verse 1. We started at the end of chapter 11 because 
Paul is just enthusing about how amazing God is, the depth of the riches, the wisdom and the knowledge of God, who has known his mind, who has been his counsellor, who has given to God that God should have to repay him. Therefore, because God is who he is, and because God has done for us what he has done, therefore, brothers and sisters, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's why, not because it's a rule, not because we're forced to, but because when we begin, even begin to grasp what God has done for us, it's the only rational, logical, loving response that we can make. As a Christian of another generation put it, if Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. That's the why. But what does it mean in practice? It's a weird sort of thing, isn't it? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. It would have been very puzzling to Paul's readers because mainly the culture back in those days said religion was about spiritual things and it didn't apply to physical things. The gods that the Greeks and the Romans believed in were not supposed to be bothered with physical stuff. They didn't mind how we lived and what we did and all the rest of it, as long as we did the sacrifices and the ritual and all the religious stuff. But Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifice. What he means is, offer to God all the things, the ordinary things of everyday life. Everything that you are involved in must be offered to God. Let's take a few obvious examples just to make the point. Today we've had this mission theme in the services. And it may be that God will call somebody here to serve in Nepal or somewhere else in the world or call you to be a street pastor or involved in ministry or mission in this country. Might call you to train and become the minister of a church. Or he may not. And the vast majority of Christians are not called to be missionaries overseas, are not called to be ministers, are not called to take up special Christian jobs. But every Christian is called by God to be a witness wherever we are and whatever we do. There was a funeral here this week, funeral of Mick Howlett, our friend, member of the church, One of the very moving things was there were a lot of people from Orange where he worked and one of the guys gave a tribute and they talked about Mick at work and these are folk who are not Christians and they talked about him as being conscientious and hardworking. They talked about him being caring and considerate to fellow workers. They talked about him being lively and interesting and with a good sense of humour. And everybody who worked with him knew that he was a Christian and that Christ was important in his life and that he'd be in church on Sunday and all those kind of things. That's what offering your body as a living sacrifice is about. It's about in the place where you are, whether that's your home or with your friends, whether it's at school, whether it's at university, whether it's in a job, whether it's wherever, and saying, God, this belongs to you And I'm going to live in that situation in a way that brings glory to you. I'm going to do the stuff that I do the best that I can. I'm going to be as friendly and as helpful and as caring to people around me as I can. I'm going to be the kind of person 
that actually people like to be with, not in a superficial way. And I've got to be the kind of person that's not ashamed to say I'm a Christian and I belong to Jesus. Here's another example. Money. You often get sermons on money in church. And sometimes a brave preacher will stand up and talk about tithing, which is a kind of Old Testament thing. It's a, it was like a temple tax, and you had to pay 10% of your, uh, your, your flocks and your herds and your, your crops and all that kind of thing. And some brave preachers will say, 10% ought to be what we should give to God. And some even braver preachers, they get up and they talk about tithes and offerings. And they say, not only should you give 10% to God, you should give extra free will offerings on top, because that's what people did in the Old Testament. I want to suggest that when we ask how much of my money should I give to God, we've got the question back to front. The question we ought to be asking is, how much of God's money is it right for me to spend on myself? You see the difference? Not how much of mine do I give to God, but how much of what God has given me is it right to spend on myself? Now I want to tell you something. God is not mean. And God is not stingy. Listen to what Paul says to uh, Timothy, the end of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, command those who are rich in this present world. That's us, by the way. Whenever you read about being rich in the Bible, that's anybody living in this country. Even the poorest person in this country is rich compared with the kind of stuff we've seen in Nepal and other countries in the world. So don't think it's somebody else. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. What? In God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Hey, not... Put their trust in God who wants us to live boring, miserable, stingy lives that we can't do anything that's fun. But God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Here's a God who wants us to have a good life and to enjoy it and knows that actually that doesn't come by just buying more things and owning more things and doing more things and spending more on ourselves. That Actually, it comes when we are generous and willing to share. It comes when we put our trust in God, not in money. It's a question that's always puzzled me. Why do millionaires keep working? You know, when I've got my first million, I'm going to stop. They can't. Because actually what you find is the more you get, the less satisfied you are. And you get addicted to getting more and more and more. I was reading a book about economics and it said, is a man with five million pounds happy? And they said, it depends. If he had three and now he's got five, yes he is for a while. If he had ten and he's now got five, then he's miserable. Are we ready to sacrifice money, possessions to God? One more example. What about relationships? I was asked to speak to a group of young leaders and they got around to talking about relationships and I think they were trying to impress me a bit. And they were saying, of course, 
very important Christian leaders, Christian young people, that they don't have sex before they're married. And they kept on about this, and, um, just to make sure I got the message. And I said, and if that means that actually you're single for the whole of your life, is that a price you're prepared to pay? And everybody's face dropped. Because it's easy to say, yes, we should live this way. And it's much harder when you have to be realistic and count the cost. Now, don't be discouraged. God's normal pattern for most Christians is that they marry. But God calls some people to singleness. Are you willing for God to make that decision for your life? An elderly lady had a key part in my conversion. She had a fiancé. He died during the Second World War. She never married. She devoted the rest of her life to providing hospitality and care to people, particularly missionaries from overseas coming to this country and uh, all sorts of people in need in the area. It was a fulfilled and a vital life. Nobody will ever know how many lives she touched but because she was willing to say to God, you've taken away my fiancé. I don't understand why he died, but I accept. And I'm prepared to live the life that you have given me. Are we willing to sacrifice our relationships to God? You could think of lots of other examples, but let's ask that third question. How do we do it? And the answer is there in Romans 12, verse 2. Because here's the other half of the, uh, the situation. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In order to do this, you've got to get your brain sorted out. You've got to get your thinking transformed. Because there is a world out there that's lying to us. J.B. Phillips translates that verse like this. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mould, but let God remould your minds from within. The world shouts its lies at us. The world wants to fill our minds with its values and its beliefs. And if we're going to live sacrificial lives, we've got to get our heads into God's values and God's truth and not the world's belief and the world's truth. Pick up a couple of examples, just picking on the things we've already looked at. Lie number one, the world says money is God. It says you are what you own. It says you must buy, you must consume. Our whole society is built around consuming more and more and more. Do you know there's a picture of the perfect consumer in the Bible? It's a creature called the locust. And the locust is a sign of God's judgment because it comes and it consumes everything and strips it bare. And the world says, hey, that's a good way to live. Consume more and more and more. And we need individually to get our heads around what it means to lead simpler lives so that our lives are freed up from all the clutter that the world wants to give us to do what God wants. And we also need people who will be Christian economists and financiers and business people and politicians who can begin to shape society and break the lie in society that everything has to grow and grow and grow because all growth comes at the expense of someone else. 
We read those verses in Timothy where Paul says to Timothy, command the rich not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, to put our hope in God. The world says money is God. It's not. It's a false God. Here's the second lie that the world throws at us. It says you can't live a normal life without sex. Now you may have noticed there's been a lot of fuss lately about gay marriage, both in the Christian press and in the media and all the rest of it. I'm not going to talk about that, but I want to say this. In all the fuss about it, Christians have lost the plot. We have failed to realise that the kind of marriages and relationships we already have, forget about gay marriage, are not working. Christian marriages break down as often as non-Christian marriages. Christian people are unfaithful and commit adultery. Unmarried Christians sleep around and live together. They just do it a little bit more discreetly and therefore a little bit more dishonestly than people out in the world. And some of you are thinking, oh, look at him, he's so old. I bet he can't even remember when he was young. I bet if he could, they hadn't invented sex in those days. Well, I can remember when I was young and they had invented sex and I know that what I'm talking about is not an easy thing. Do you know, in the pagan religion, sex was part of worship. I don't know we'd get many people in the church if we sacrificed bulls, but if we had sacred prostitutes in the church, would that draw a crowd? That was how the pagan temples operated. They had men, women, and children virtually in slavery as prostitutes, and having sex with a temple prostitute was part of your religion. It was normal. It wasn't something disgraceful or tut-tutted. It was normal. It's what everybody did. And Paul spends a big chunk of his letter to the Corinthians talking about sexual immorality and marriage and meat sacrifice to idols. And it's all about this one thing. It says, when you become a Christian, you can't go on living like everybody else does and like you always have done. You have to change. Because God's standards are not the world's standards. And the world says... You can't live a normal life without sex. Sleep around, have as much sex with as many people as you want, however you want. And it's a lie. And we need God to transform our minds and our understanding so that we can live differently. Here's lie number three. The world says, if you're religious, you will be miserable, frustrated and bored. Hey, listen to the stories that Kay was telling. There are people there every Friday and Saturday night looking for excitement, looking for fun, and do they find it? Not always. Maybe we might say, not often. But the testimony of Christians down through the ages is that a life sacrificed to God is actually the most fulfilling life you can possibly lead. Don't swallow the lie that being a Christian is dull and boring. It's the most radical, life-changing experience you can possibly have. Quickly, one other lie, because I think this is important for some people. Lie number four says, you've messed up and it's too late. See, there's a danger in me preaching about sacrifice and saying we ought to live like this and we ought to live like that. And we say, well... I can't do it, and I've done this, and I've done that, and I'm doing all sorts of things that I'm ashamed of, and I don't want God to know about, and I don't want other people to know about. There's no point in me bothering. Yes, there is. God is always ready to forgive. doesn't matter how much we've messed up. God will take us as we are, and God will move us on step by step. He doesn't expect us to become perfect overnight, but we never become perfect in this life. 
He knows what's going on in our heads. He knows what's going on in our lives. He knows those things nobody else knows about. And he still loves us. That's why Jesus died for us. Forgiveness is available. Don't let the world shout that lie at you. You've messed up. It's too late. It's never too late with God. Hundreds of years ago, followers of St. Francis of Assisi, you know the guy who preached the animals and all the rest of it, took vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Today, we probably use the word simplicity rather than poverty. But they would be good vows to adopt. Not because we have to, but because we love God and want to live for Him. A life of simplicity. God's money and possessions and His world used well in the way that God intended. A life of chastity. God's gift of sex and relationships lived well in the way that God intends. A life of obedience. God's time used well in the way that God intended. If those were our guidelines, if those were the ways we were determined to live, we'd not only see our own lives change, we'd see the lives of people around us change. In just a moment or two, we're going to sing an old hymn when I survey the wondrous cross. It finishes like this. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You can stand up and sing it, and you all know it, and you can sing it well, and and the last verse is usually a lot louder than the other verses, and everybody can get carried away, and that's great, but tonight, as you sing those words, will you say to God in your heart, in your mind, Lord, it's not words that I'm singing and nothing else. Whatever it costs, tonight I give to you my soul, my life, my all. My body is a living sacrifice, my mind to be transformed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, It's an incredibly tough call that you make on us to talk about giving our bodies as a living sacrifice, to give up everything for you, even though you give back so much richly for us to enjoy. To have our minds transformed so that we're out of step with the people around us. We live to different values from the world. But Father, that's what we want to do. We pray that your Holy Spirit will work amongst us tonight, that every single one of us can know your love and your grace, forgiving us for what's past, but equipping us for what's to come as we live a life of sacrificial obedience to you. So take us and use us and bless us and make us a blessing to others in the way that we live. For Jesus' sake. Amen.